Welcome to episode 173 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else that likes going out under the stars. In this episode, we'll talk about small solar system objects you can see in tiny telescopes. And so I was thinking, Shane, with Jupiter and Saturn leaving us, I thought maybe people might be interested in some other solar system objects objects. What do you think? I like it a lot. And one of the reasons why I like this topic is we can also do this from urban, you know, light polluted locations. Uh, you don't necessarily need a real dark sky to observe these things. You just need some optics. Um, so uh, I'm always a fan of objects I can observe just in my backyard and, and not have to worry about driving to a dark site. And I was thinking about you with this topic. I was, I was oh. the past few weeks, we've kind of bantered around some different ideas. And then as we kind of led up to this week, I thought, you know, I think this would work well because here with the major planets, you know, Jupiter and Saturn are kind of pretty, pretty low down in the evening sky now, and, and they'll quickly be out of our sky. Um, we do have some other solar system objects that we can go and take a look at. You can see in small telescopes and binoculars um, so they don't require any any large gear. Um, so it's kind of a, a fun thing to do, you know, and like you said, you can see them even from uh, a reasonably light polluted city. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and it, it's it, what I also like about these is it's a different way of observing, which we'll get into, you know, how do you actually observe these things? Mm -hmm. How do you know you've observed one of these things? It is a little bit different. And I like that it just varies uh, how we observe things in the solar system. Yeah. So, and just sort of a little bit of background here. So um, I'm the, uh, or, or going to be sort of a, uh, I'm a work in progress. Um, that's no secret. Uh, the <laughs> Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's observers calendar editor to be, or, or editor in waiting. I'm, I'm starting to work on the 2023 uh, edition and the, the editor who's uh, the editor for the current edition is Paul and we were meeting this week and we were talking about some stuff and um, starting to get the files together for, for 2023. And one thing uh, Paul uh, talked to me about, and this is, this is so true, it's, it's really cool, is that when you're working on these type of publications, and so I just do this as a volunteer, um, it's not my paid job, I have a regular uh, day job at a university, but, uh, but, but for this, this is just for fun. And I, and I really love this kind of stuff, really love figuring out, you know, what you can look at and what you can see in the nighttime sky and sharing it with people. And so by working on a calendar like this, I, I get to share it with, with, uh, with a different audience than maybe I'm usually reaching through this podcast or my classes. But Paul talked to me about, um, Bruce McCurdy. Bruce McCurdy is a well-known member of our organization here in Canada, and he used to have a column, I think it was in, in the journal of our organization, which is free online. Anybody can go and download it at rasc.ca. And, and Bruce used to have a column, maybe he still does, um, but he, but he used to still he used to have this column called Orbital Oddities, because as, as we're going through this material, you come up with these interesting things. And Paul was talking to me about this. And then I, I turn around and I'm like, okay. And he kind of gave me some places to get started. And so um, I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do, what I'd like to do is see if I can replicate um, what the last person did, whether it's at a job or whether it's volunteering. I'd like to say, okay, well, um, can I do what the last person did? And then, and then ask them further, further questions to make sure I'm, I'm on the right track. 
And so I started looking at the minor planet list and the first minor planet that uh, that's coming up, I knew it was going to be at opposition this coming, or it's this week now. Um, and that's going to be series. So on the 27th and 28th series is going to be at opposition. And, uh, and what I noticed though, is that for next year series isn't at opposition, it's at perihelion. So we're not going to have a series opposition next year. And this has to do with the fact that uh, that series is in orbit around the sun. It takes uh, about four, 4.6 or so years for it to orbit around the sun. And so that, you know, it's sort of roughly, you know, I think for, for this and for the next year, uh, this year coming and, and then five years down the road, we don't get an opposition in those years because it's, it's at perihelion. Although you can see it, um, it's not going to be at its best. So um, with that, I thought, well, maybe we'll talk about observing Ceres because it's going to be at its best this week and in uh, the next few weeks and uh, sort of leading up till Christmas. And then uh, we're not going to have a series opposition next year. So this is a great opportunity for people to go and take a look at uh, a pretty easy uh, minor planet to see because this minor planet is going to be at seventh magnitude this week. And that's mm-hmm. something you can see pretty easy in binoculars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if somebody is looking for a new observing project, um, one thing they could consider is observing a number of the minor planets or asteroids, uh, in our solar system. There's about, I think 25 or so that are visible in like four inches of aperture. So that's a fairly, you know, common or modest backyard telescope. Um, and like you mentioned, Chris, um, opposition only happens once every five years for series. And in general, um, with a lot of these objects you'll be looking for, they're about every four to six years is opposition. So you really have a, you know, a, a sort of a short window to observe these things at their brightest. Um, yes. and then you lose that. So if you're interested in this project, you know, if you want to make this something you observe, this is the best time to start because as you mentioned, Ceres uh, is going to be at um, opposition here in the next couple of, or next week, I guess. Yep. So it's the brightest one. It's the easiest one to start with. And then it can kind of kickstart your, your uh, observing project. Yeah. Yeah. It's the brightest one right now. I think we get a, I think like Vesta gets a little brighter. I, I've actually, yeah, yeah, good point. Um, sort of my background on this is it's not something I do all the time, but I've gone through and observed uh, a lot of these asteroids and, and minor planets um, just because um, some nights I'd be going observing and I didn't really have anything on my list. And I remember there was, there were several times in the past where some of these get up to naked eye visibility or very close. And I just thought, man, I really want to see an asteroid um, just with my eyes without any uh, optical aid. And so I was able to see, uh, I think it was Vesta mm-hmm. several times. And then, uh, and then as well, you think, okay, well, like binoculars as well, like that's pretty cool to think, you know, uh, here I have a small pair of binoculars and, you know, somebody might think, well, what can you see in binoculars? And oh yeah, I'm looking at asteroids. That's super neat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, these asteroids are quite a ways away in terms of distance and they're not large at all. Um, you know, I think we'll get into some of the specifics around series, but, um, you know, to be able to see some of this with, um, again, just handheld binoculars is really incredible. So when it, when it comes to these asteroids as well, what, what I was interested in, um, as I'm going through our documentation for producing, 
um, the observer's calendar for the RASC, which is the organization we volunteer at the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And we also have the observer's handbook. And these are both items that are for sale uh, here in Canada as well. I think uh, Sky and Telescope and some of the other uh, places in the States carry these because we do put out an, an American version of our uh, observer's handbook now. Um, so these things are available for, for people to purchase. But, you know, like I said, we just volunteer and we just, just do this for fun. Um, however, when I, when I received the, the text documents and some of them go back a little, a little ways in history, and the person who generates these or some of these, the ones for the asteroids anyway, is, uh, is Alistair Ling, who is a longtime contributor to, uh, to many of the astronomy magazines and, and most recently astronomy magazine. Um, and I noticed that Ceres was listed as an asteroid and I was like, I thought it was a minor planet. And of course, um, it was seen as, a, as an asteroid for a long time and then eventually sort of graduated to minor planet status, I think like back in 2006 or 2010 or something like that. And so I, I looked it up on, on NASA and it said it, that uh, Ceres was called an asteroid for many years, um, but that it's so much bigger and so different than its rocky neighbors that scientists have reclassified it as a dwarf planet in 2006. I don't know when it transitioned in our literature, but it was 2006 that, uh, that they made that call and that Ceres comprises 25% of the asteroids, asteroid belt's total mass. So uh, Pluto is, is still about 14 times larger, but Ceres is much closer. So it gets to seventh magnitude, meaning that you can see it fairly easily in binoculars from a moderately sized city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, the, the another kind of interesting thing about, you know, it's while it's 25% of the total mass of the asteroid belt is it's roughly the same surface area as India. Um, so when you then oh, really? think of how big India is and kind of wrap that into a ball, um, it's not a huge object. And again, it's, it's quite a long ways away from us. Um, so I'm, I'm just fascinated that this thing is observable with binoculars. I just can't get past that for some reason. <laughs> yeah. So now it's been reclassified as, as a, as a dwarf planet or a minor planet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, about 968 kilometers at its widest. And I, I put a graphic up for you, Shane, you can see it uh, in between uh, the moon and, uh, and earth, though it would never be between the moon and the earth. Uh, hopefully not. And uh, you can see that, yeah, you're right. It's pretty small in comparison to, uh, to our planet and our nearest celestial neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it goes around the earth. Uh, well, no, it doesn't go around the earth, but I guess it doesn't weigh, but it orbits around the sun <laughs> here. I have, I have the image of the, of the earth and series together. So that's, that, that's the reason for my gaffe, but uh, it goes around the sun um, at a distance of about three astronomical units. So what is, what is an astronomical unit, Shane? So that is the distance that earth is from the sun. So we just call that one astro one astronomical unit. So at just under three, it's about three times as far away from the sun as we are. Yeah. So it sits out in that zone between Mars uh, and Jupiter that is sort of uh, called the, the asteroid belt, although it's, it's sort of a, a poor choice of, of words maybe for that. And with Ceres coming up uh, this week at, at seventh magnitude, that's uh, fairly easy to see, though it will just look like a star, hey? Yeah, you're not you're not going to be able to detect any sort of disc or see any surface features or anything like that. It really will be a point of light, 
And it will be easy to mistake it for just a, a regular old star. And this is where some of the, the challenge will come into um, making this observation um, because it's not, again, it's, it's abnormal compared to probably what a lot of us are used to looking for. Exactly. But one of the neat things about Ceres is that uh, by sitting between Mars and Jupiter, um, what we're looking at is a dwarf planet that's located in our inner solar system. So when we think about observing the planets, you know, we had the Mars opposition last year. Um, we've been looking at Jupiter and Saturn quite a bit this year because they've been well-placed in, in the warm summer sky. Um, so this object kind of just sort of sits in amongst these other planets. So you're really observing something that really sort of on the astronomical scale of things is not really far away. I know often when I think about minor planets, I'm thinking about the ones that sit really far away, like Pluto and you know uh, some of the other trans-Neptunian bodies. But they're really far away and they're going to be fairly faint to see. But here's one that's that's bright enough. I mean, really seventh magnitude, theoretically, uh, a younger person with really great eyes on a rural farm here um, where we live would be able to, to see Ceres uh, with their eye alone. And, uh, and most of us shouldn't have any trouble seeing it in binoculars, even from the city. Yeah, for sure. So this was discovered by Giuseppe Piazzi in 1801 on the shoulder of Taurus. And so that's interesting because it's near its present position. So right now it's actually in Taurus and we have uh, we have a little chart here. We'll talk more about how to find these later, but uh, it's actually near the spot. It's in the same general, it's in the same constellation uh, where it was when it was discovered back in, uh, in 1801, which is, uh, you know, uh, approximately about 220 years ago. Pretty cool. Yeah, super cool. And just to maybe build on that a little bit, Chris, um, be, just before the discovery, um, I think it was around 1778 or so, uh, Johann Bode or Bode um, had a formula that predicted the orbital position of planets, like how many AUs they would be uh, from the sun oh, to a certain degree. So he, you know, he, this formula accurately plotted Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Huh. But there was a missing planet in this formula, and that was there was supposed to be something between Mars and Jupiter. So in 1800, um, Piazzi and about 23 other astronomers, uh, I guess they were dubbed the Celestial Police. Ooh. And uh, yeah, yeah, who knew? And uh, they began. I'm sorry, I wasn't speeding officer, I'm just in orbit. <laughs> They, they started a search for this missing planet because, again, this, this formula that Bode had put out suggested there should be one in that area. Huh. Um, and then Ceres was discovered. And um, what was kind of interesting about that is it was originally classified as a planet. That, That's right. Uh, yeah. That they thought the missing planet was discovered. And, uh, you know, more and more research proved that to be, you know, once the size of this thing was really understood, then, then, uh, thoughts changed that it probably is not a planet, but here we are today. So, and that, that kind of explains things. Cause when, when I was, uh, I, I read a few papers on this and, uh, Piazzi was using what's called a Palermo circle, or, or at least that's, that's what the, uh, the papers, uh, that, that I read called it. Um, so it wasn't really like a refractor or anything like that almost looked like, a like a more complicated transit instrument. If, if people are familiar with that, what I was trying to do is to see what size instruments people were using when they made their discoveries. Uh, and what I found out is that, that this instrument that Piazzi was using had a 7.5 centimeter objective. And so that's actually really close 
to the same size instrument that you use for your lot for your observation chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, and Piazze, Giuseppe Piazze is the, the same Piazze known for uh, Piazze's uh, flying star, which we're not going to get into here, but that's uh, one of the stars that's known to have amongst the highest uh, proper motion of, of any stars in, uh, in our galaxy. So um, he, he's somebody who's, who's well reputed. He was using a small instrument. And, uh, and that was for his discovery. Of course, now you can go on to uh, different websites and, and get a chart for uh, for series and uh, and hunt it up for yourself, even just with a pair of binoculars. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So NASA's uh, Dawn spacecraft arrived in 2015. Do you remember this? Do you remember when the, yeah. the Dawn's? It was so exciting. It I was, remember. Yeah. Yeah. Because as it was drawing close to series, it was picking up this really bright dot on mm-hmm. the surface. Do you remember that? Yeah. And like, like huge contrast, like it was very strange to see that. And there was all kinds of debates, of course, um, you know, these would fall from, uh, from scientific to pseudoscientific. And, uh, you know, there, there was debate on whether it was going to be an alien colony with bright spotlights and all kinds of different things like that. But of course, it ends up being this ice volcano in uh, Octor Crater. Pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's super white compared to the rest of the, like, the asteroid where, you know, the asteroid to me has a bit of um, that lunar gray, but like the darker gray. And then, you know, this volcanic area is basically white so it really stands out yeah it just looked uh you know in those in those photos you know even from early photos as it began its approach it started picking this up right away mm-hmm. um that was like the only thing you could see was just like this bright looked like you know basically a giant spotlight coming right out from the center and it's it's remarkable it's not that it's you know you know, towards the limb or anything. It's, it's almost like dead center. At least it was, you know, just from the angle that the spacecraft was on approach. Anyway, I guess it could have been approaching from any angle, but just, just this, uh, this fact made it so dramatic. eh? pretty. Oh yeah. It's really amazing. And, and, you know, your mind does start to wonder or wander a little bit, you know, as to the possibility of what that could be. And, uh, usually like in, you know, many cases, the simplest explanation is the right one. And I think, uh, you know, just a brighter area reflecting more light is, you know, what they discovered. Yeah. And one of our connections to Ceres is that it's named after the Roman goddess of corn and harvest and the word cereal comes from the name Ceres. So there you go. When you're when you're eating your cereal after a long night of observing, Shane, that's why it has the name cereal. It comes after series. Perfect. <laughs> Bet you didn't know that. I did not know that. No. <laughs> right now, series is sitting almost up in the Pleiades. Actually, you know, or, oh, or yeah. it's in the Hyades. Um, yeah, yeah. It actually sits between the Hyades and the Pleiades, but it's really close to where the moon was during the lunar eclipse the other night. And if I had thought of looking for this, I really should have done this. I really should have hunted down Ceres when the moon was just sitting uh, right there. That would have been really cool to be able to see the moon in eclipse and an asteroid in a open cluster. That would have been super cool. That would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe, you know, next time there's a lunar eclipse and Ceres is at opposition, maybe you can catch it then. <laughs> yeah, perhaps I'm thinking that's unlikely, but regardless, Ceres 
B minor planet is sitting in and around the Hyades, which is an open cluster up in Taurus. It's a really uh, famous and easy to see open cluster. Um, pair of binoculars will show it. It's like the main part of the constellation of Taurus forms like that, that V shape of stars or the head. And it's only really, um, I think it's about four degrees away from Aldebaran just to the northwest uh, in the direction of the uh, Pleiades. Now, um, you will need a decent chart to be able to figure out um, which, which of these stars you're looking at. And so um, I, have a, I have a chart here, Shane, I don't know if we can tweet it out or not, um, but I made this chart up showing uh, where Ceres is. Um, like I said, it's just on the northwestern uh, edge of the Heidi star cluster. And at seventh magnitude, um, what you should be able to do with your binoculars is to take a look, see where it is, and then just draw the field. There's actually a star that it's sitting very close by, sitting near, um, I think it's about a, an eighth magnitude star. And so what you should be able to do is see Ceres move in relation to that star. Yeah, yeah. Now, how apparent will that movement be, Chris? It's actually quite apparent over the course of a few days. Now, typically... Um, what I would suggest doing is is having uh, at least a couple days between your observations. Those series moves uh, fairly quickly, so you're going to be able to to maybe detect it even from uh, one night to the next. And certainly, if you do get uh, clear nights back to back, and and you are going out to to observe series, then you know of course you're going to observe it. Uh, could take uh, maybe even a few days to detect the motion, but uh, over the course of the week, say if you had. Um, you know, a few clear nights over the course of a week, uh, certainly would be able to, uh, to detect the motion of, of series there. Yeah, for sure. Um, in general, a lot of these asteroids will move at about, I think it's like, I want to say 30 to 40 arc seconds per hour. Okay. Um, now what can make it challenging, uh, in some cases is how close is the asteroid in comparison to any of the background stars? That's if there's right. an, if there's a number of background stars and you can you know, sketch what you believe to be Sirius or Ceres, uh, you know, in conjunction with these other stars, um, the, the movement will probably be more apparent to you over the course of a couple of nights. If there's not many stars in the star field, uh, it can be a little more challenging to detect it. And you may need a little bit more space between your observations to really see how it's changed in relation to the background stars. Um, another thing to do, and this is just a, a, a tip in general for observing asteroids, is see if there's any like, you know, so you believe you've seen your asteroid. Are there other stars that form uh, like triangles or squares or rectangles? And if you can draw some of those shapes uh, in and amongst the stars, it may help you to notice when that triangle changes, you know, it becomes a, a right triangle or something like that over the course of a couple of nights. And um, that can help you sometimes pick out the motion as well. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent uh, way to describe it. Now, of course, uh, almost regardless of the size of the instrument you use, it's still going to look just like a star. So the cool part is, is that whether you use binoculars or a small telescope, uh, it's not really going to matter. Even if you had a really big telescope and you pointed at Ceres, well, you're really just going to be able to see it as uh, as a point of light. You're not going to be able to see the cryovolcano or any craters or anything like that. Um, it's still just going to look like, uh, basically, it's just going to look like a seventh magnitude star 
but yeah. may, maybe you'd be able to see some disc. I, I don't know. I'm curious to see maybe if we can uh, get a good night next weekend, we'll get it with Mike's 12 inch telescope and see, uh, see if we can make make a disc out there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting. Um, and, and maybe just to circle back to your comment about star charts. Um, if you are going to try series with a telescope, um, try to, try to make it, try to make the image in your chart, uh, the same as what it looks like through a telescope. So if you're using a refractor, mm. it's left, right, reversed. If you can do that and then print out the proper image of how it will appear through your telescope, that will help you immensely in determining whether or not you're, you know, likely looking at series. Uh, because if you have to start doing those gymnastics in your head, it can get a little confusing outside when you're at the eyepiece. Um, and a number of these uh, planetarium programs will allow you to flip left, right, uh, upside down, all of that sort of stuff to match whatever type of telescope you have. And, you know, even if you don't have any good planetarium software, a super easy way to do that is if you have uh, access to any of the host of Microsoft products, you could just, excuse me, you can just take the image drop it into like word or PowerPoint mm. or something like that. And then just use the little flipper and you can just sort of flip to orient it to match the field, uh, to match your field through your telescope. Yeah. That's a good tip for sure. Yeah. Just because of my, my setup, I don't, my, my planetarium software won't do that on the computer that I use it on. So I just take the image out and then just flip it around in, uh, usually in PowerPoint. Cause I often always have PowerPoint open. Perfect. All right. So we move on to 44 NISA. Yes, we should. So 44 NISA is magnitude 9.1. So this one is a little challenging, but it's an interesting uh, asteroid that's going to be at opposition on December 13th. So we talked about Ceres. Now Ceres is sort of the star of our show here, and that's a great one to start with. Here we have it at opposition, magnitude 7, pretty easy to see. It's a good training ground. Next month, we're going to have 44 NISA, and it's going to be a little bit more challenging at ninth magnitude, but again, still visible in binoculars and small telescopes uh, from a city. If you're having trouble and you can't see ninth magnitude stars, you might have to get out to, to a darker sky, but from a city, typically a small telescope is going to show this. And why is it worth, why is it worth looking at, Shane? Why should we look at 44 NISA? Well, I don't know. Uh, for me, it's, it's <laughs> it. So we just talked about series and how large it is. It's 968 kilometers at its widest. NISA is 71 kilometers at, at its widest. So it's, it's much smaller. So again, it's fascinating that we can use very modest instruments and be able to see this rock tumbling through space. I think it's really cool. It's also a class E type asteroid and it's the largest of this type and they are achondrites uh, and don't you have some achondrite meteorites uh yes i do yeah yeah um i thought i, I, I thought, thought that's what you would hit on <laughs> right yeah i probably should have um yeah achondrite meteorites are um i don't you know i don't think any meteorite is super common on earth but if you want to buy an achondrite you you can you can find them and uh yeah that's really cool that this is part of that class yeah. So for one of the uh, types of meteorites that you can actually find on earth or, or purchase, like Shane said, well, here you have the largest of the type. So I, I thought it'd be really cool if you actually held your achondrite meteorite in your hand, <laughs> Shane, and then you looked at this object because, I mean, really then you, you actually are holding a piece 
uh, of of asteroid material that's of the same type as uh, as the object that, that you're looking at. It sort of would bring like a like a real presence to to your observation. I thought that would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'll have to dig. I'll have to dig out my meteorites and see which. I think I have a couple of chondrites. So yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just, I just thought that'd be fun when I was making this up, I thought we'll, we'll put that in for Shane. Um, so this is uh, two to about 2.8 uh, astronomical units uh, away. So it's generally a, a little bit closer than, than Ceres, but it's much smaller as, as Shane was saying. Uh, and it goes around the sun every uh, 3.8 years and it only gets to be about ninth magnitude. But sort of like the interesting part. It was discovered by Hermann Goldschmidt on May 27th in 1857. And it was using a telescope that he bought. It was just, uh, or sorry, he, I should say it wasn't using this telescope, but it, he started observing with a telescope that was only two inches in diameter using money that he got by selling portraits that he painted of Galileo when he was staying in Florence. Wow. Cool, huh? yeah. I love, I love stories like that. I think that's amazing. Yeah, so he painted some some portraits of, of Galileo and uh, and sold those and then bought a telescope. So very, very fitting. And then he eventually upgraded to something like a 60 or 70 millimeter. And then eventually he got to the four inch and sort of along the way in his journey, he ended up discovering something like 14 asteroids, I think. And like you were saying before, many of these were thought to be planets uh, during his day. Yeah, very cool. So it's named after the uh, mythical land of uh, Nysa, which is uh, from a Greek myth. But the person um, who, who really contributed to uh, a lot of what we know about Nysa was a Dutch astronomer named Harry Rotten. And he made observations on March 12th, 2012, to confirm the conical shape that was discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope using uh, a set of occultations. So I thought that was really neat too. So that uh, it was it was discovered, you know, back in the in the 1850s, and then eventually Hubble comes along, uh, you know, hypothesizes through its observations and its science team that it's uh, has this cone shape, and then uh, an amateur astronomer says, "Yep." Hubble got it right, you know, does that confirmation. I thought that really is sort of a full, full circle, you know, for this, uh, for this object in space. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. So when I was looking this up though, for some reason, this object did not come up in my planetarium software. So I was looking around and there's a website called in-the-sky.org. Um, and you can go in there and plunk in any asteroid and it will make you up a custom chart. You can zoom in and out. So I made up a, a custom chart for this one. So just like Ceres, this object is in the constellation of Taurus. Now it's over sort of on the, uh, on the Eastern side of Taurus, whereas uh, Ceres is sitting, uh, in the in the Hyades cluster right now, this one is over on the uh, easternmost horn uh, or just below, and then it's going to sort of track back towards the Hyades and, and then loop back around. So right now, um, you know, if we're looking sort of at mid-December, it's going to be sort of uh, partway along that eastern horn and, and then just below a little bit. But you're going to have to go and generate yourself uh, a pretty good star chart because even a lot of star charts that people might have 
are only going to plot stars down to uh, ninth magnitude. And you're going to want to uh, make sure that you include this, this object there, because uh, of course the asteroids aren't going to be plotted um, on your, on your charts that you might have at home. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. All right. So we move along to Iris. Let's do it. Iris is going to be at opposition on January 3rd. And of course, opposition is when an object in our solar system is opposite uh, the sun in Earth's night sky. So it's sort of where, where it looks, where, where we're looking at stuff in space. It's from our perspective that's creating this. And on January 3rd, Iris is going to be at magnitude 7.6 or about seven and a half. And it's the fourth largest object in the asteroid belt. So I think it's only about like 270 odd kilometers across uh, at its widest. And it varies quite a bit, it has an orbit of 3.7 years, but the, uh, the distance from the sun varies between 1.8 and about three astronomical units. So um, big difference there. And it's also an S-type asteroid, meaning it's a stony mix of nickel iron uh, metals and magnesium and iron silicates. So what are your thoughts on, uh, on this object for making some observations, Shane? Well, it's kind of neat. Not only is it the fourth largest object in the asteroid belt, but it's the fourth brightest. And I'm not too sure that those things mm-hmm. always line up. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, it was discovered on Friday the 13th in August Ooh. of Ooh. 1847. I, I had to look this up because I saw that it was discovered on uh on August 13th. And I was like, it'd be funny if it was a Friday and I did look it up and it was, it was actually <laughs> discovered on Friday the 13th, um, in 1847 by J.R. Hind, of course, famous, uh, same Hind as, as Hind's variable nebula for those, uh, for those that are, that are into variable nebula observations, which has become pretty famous, uh, you know, recently for a lot of uh, people online, uh, taking photos of, and they can see the change in the variability of that nebula, but his, asteroidal discovery here was made at uh, London's George Bishop Observatory using a seven inch Dolan refractor. That's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. I would love to look through one of those. Yeah. I don't think it, it, that, that, uh, that observatory went, uh, went out of business, if you can call it a business after Bishop's death. So I think he moved on to, uh, to other locations. I wonder where that glass is now to that. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be a neat project to find that out. Yeah. Iris is named after the Greek goddess of rainbows. I'm not sure why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. But I like rainbows. I'm uh, a big rainbow fan. Who, who doesn't like them, right? Beautiful color. Yeah. Rainbows and unicorns. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so, so this object is sitting on the Western side of the constellation Cancer. So as we're looking at these objects, you can see that Ceres is on the western side of the Hyades, and then um, our next object is 44 Nisei, and it's on the uh, eastern side of the Hyades, and then we have this is sort of like a couple constellations over, uh, getting into the western side of Cancer. And again, uh, because this is just going to be seven and a half magnitude, uh, you can see it in binoculars and small telescopes, but you're going to want to go to to a website like inthesky.org or look it up in your planetarium software and to be able to generate that chart. And then like Shane was saying, if you are looking at it through an instrument, you want to make sure that you flip it around and correctly oriented uh, to, your, uh, to your instrument that you're looking at. It. Of course, just with your binoculars, you won't have to do that. 
those. So a good pair of seven by fifties, 10 by fifties, eight by forties, something like that uh, will be enough to see this, this asteroid. Yeah, for sure. Sounds good. Shall we move on to uh, 20 Massalia? Yeah. Yeah. Massalia is going to be at opposition on February 5th. And so it's going to be magnitude eight and a half. So not quite as faint as uh, our faintest one, but uh, definitely uh, something that you're going to want to be able to uh, use that charting software to uh, to create a pretty good chart for locating. So the interesting part about uh, Massalia is that it's the parent of the Massalia class of S-type stony asteroids, of which there is over 6,000. Whoa, that's a lot. Yeah, which made me wonder. Maybe you have uh, a meteorite that that was that was born in the Massalia family of asteroids, because uh, certainly uh, there's lots of them out there. Stony type, yeah. I don't know if I have any of those. I I would have to go check the collection. I don't think I do. Yeah, yeah. It would it would be cool though. Stony type asteroids. Um, so this one is 145 kilometers in diameter, ranges between about 2.1 and 2.8 astronomical units, and it takes just uh, just under four years to orbit the sun, and it reaches eight and a half magnitude on February 5th. So a little while from now, but um, the thing is that after you've seen these first three, um, that'll be good training ground. So then you'll 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 have the skills you need, especially after observing a series and uh, and iris you'll really have the skills that you need to be able to to observe uh, asteroids that are brighter than 10th magnitude whenever you want yeah yeah which is quite an accomplishment so this one was discovered by uh, astronomer uh Anbal de gasparis i don't know if i'm saying that right on 19th of september in 1952 but using the 17.5 centimeter fraunhofer which mm-hmm. uh, would be a beautiful instrument, um, just under seven inches. So mm-hmm. it was named uh, after the city of Marseille. Oh, and from which, uh, yeah. And, and so the reason for that is there was another observer, Jean uh, Karnak, who observed it uh, the following night using the 80 centimeter focal or Foucault uh, telescope. I, I should get that right. Actually, I went and saw some of Foucault's um, scientific instruments when when I was in uh, when I was in France. So, um, and this one's sitting over just on the other side, on the eastern side uh, of Cancer. So you need to be able to generate a chart. It's just going to be sitting about uh, about halfway between uh, Rigel and uh, and the center of of Cancer, like M forty four kind of area. So that's kind of the general area of sky this uh this asteroid sits in but you should be able to uh to hunt it up with uh by by using your planetarium software using the uh, techniques that we described to you in this episode yeah and uh another kind of interesting point about massalia is that it's the first object in the solar system uh that was not assigned a mythological name oh really yeah huh that's pretty cool because it's named after Marseille. yeah exactly excellent well, that's really neat. Well, anything to add on this or any of the other asteroids or minor planets that we talked about and discussed how to observe during this episode? No, not really. Um, there, there may be one other point I guess I, I could mention is um, we talked about sketching these things uh, as a way to record your observation. 
these are also pretty, um, I would say somewhat easy to photograph as well, um, because you don't really need to do any long exposures here. So that would be another way to mm -hmm. determine whether or not you've observed it is to, um, take a photograph. Um, and then the next night, take another photograph of the same field and see if anything's moved and that can help prove your observation. Um, an interesting thing might be, and I don't know what this would look like, but um, if you put your uh, camera on just a fixed tripod, no tracking, and uh, you know pointed it at the right star field, and then just held that shutter open for quite a while, um, you might be able to pick up some of the movement. Now, what you're going to end up with is a bunch of star trails, you know, uh, but they'll they they will all be going in a very uniform. Uh, path and, you know, eventually create just this, you know, giant circle or part of a circle being you're not aimed at Polaris. Um, but the asteroid would likely be kind of going off in a different direction and you might be able to capture the movement doing that. So hmm. for any of the astrophotographers out there, I'd be kind of curious, um, to see if you could pull that yeah. off. And, uh, if you do send it to us, I'd love to see it. Yeah. Very good. Well, um, with that, we'll, we'll conclude our episode. Uh, just one more thing is that we are giving away a couple of copies of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Observer's Calendar, have uh, two copies to give away to people that write in and uh, provide us with some observations of really anything that they've seen recently in the nighttime sky. And uh, just let us know that you want to be entered in the draw for the calendar. Need to get those uh, before the 7th of December so that I can try to get those mailed out uh, before the holidays. So people have them early in the new year. The calendar is, uh, is sort of primarily written uh, by and for Canadians. However, um, everything in there works pretty good for North America and for the rest of the world. For example, like we list like 15 or 20 asteroid oppositions in there amongst uh, all the other day-to-day -day astronomical events like lunar phases and planetary oppositions, meteor showers, and that sort of thing. So let's, uh, for recording purposes, let's say people have until December 5th to get in their observations if they want to be entered. Uh, and then we'll announce sounds the good. winner on December 6th. Yeah, that sounds great. So thanks, Shane, and thanks everyone for listening. And be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. And we're always excited to get listener feedback or entries for our observers calendar giveaway to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.